Parshas Noah is the second Torah portion in the book of Genesis and in the Torah at large. It clocks in at a robust 153 verses spread out over a little bit more than five chapters. For quick reference, the average length of the 54 Parshios portions of the Torah is slightly more than 108 verses. So 153 in our Parsha is a little bit on the longer side. And in general, Genesis, the books, the portions of Genesis tend to be a lot longer. There's a lot more story, a lot more narrative, whereas the ones in Deuteronomy, for example, have many more mitzvahs, many more commandments, and are much shorter. And we begin in the middle of chapter 6 with Noah, who is, of course, the eponymous character of the Parsha. We met him already at the end of last week's Parsha. And we're told again that he's quite righteous. In fact, if you look at the whole Torah, you only find one individual that is labeled as a tzaddik, as a righteous person, and that is Noah. But the very first verse we see that there's maybe a little bit misgivings about his character. We're told that Noah was a righteous man. He was perfect in his generation. So from the very first verse, we see that he's somewhat of an enigmatic character. He's a tzaddik. He's righteous. In his generation, which seems to imply, well, maybe his status would be altered if he was in a different generation. So Rashi already tells us some of the sages, when they look at Noah, they look at him very positively. He was righteous in his generation. Imagine how much more righteous he would have been if he was surrounded by other righteous people. If he was in the generation of Abraham, he would have been even more righteous. That's one opinion. There's a second opinion amongst the sages that no, he was only righteous in his generation, but had he been in Abraham's generation, he wouldn't have amounted to to very much. So there's this kind of question, is Noah righteous in his generation only, but in other generations maybe not? Or is he righteous even in his generation, and who knows how much greater he would have been in a generation surrounded by other righteous people? And in addition, it's one of the themes we see with Noah, that he's constantly being compared to the great giants of human history and of Jewish history that came after him. So he's compared to Abraham multiple times. He's even compared to Moses once. Uh, We're told that in this week's Parsha, he's called the righteous man. And then later on, after the flood, after Noah gets off the ark, he is called the man of the land. He's like a farmer. He's the earthly man. Moshe, on the other hand, Moses, we meet, of course, in Exodus. Initially, he's called an Egyptian man, and then he's called the man of God. So Moshe is on a trajectory of going up. Initially, he was just an Egyptian man, and then he became the man of God. Whereas Noah seems to have the opposite trajectory. He starts off as a man, a righteous man, and then he becomes an earthly man, a mundane man. Just one of those questions of of who Noah is and how exactly are we supposed to view him. But this particular idea that he's compared to Abraham and we're contrasting how great he would have been had he been in Abraham's generation, it does tell us maybe a little bit about Noah's character. On one hand, Noah was great despite the people around him. And had he been surrounded by people who were great on their own right, he would have been even better. That's almost like one strand of his character. 
Alternatively, he was great not despite the people around him, but precisely because of the people around him. Noah was someone who thrived in such circumstances. He was like a contrarian. He was someone who specifically went against the grain. The people around him were all wicked, and he went the other direction, and he became very righteous. Whereas if he didn't have that influence propelling him forward, he would not really have been as great as he, as he became. But right away, we see again that there's, it's not so clear. He's very righteous, but only righteous in his generation. And he has three sons, Shem, Ham, and Yafes, Japheth. And we're told, and this is a continuation of what happened in last week's Parsha, that the land becomes corrupt and the land is full of theft. Rashi tells us that there is all kinds of sins of idolatry that became widespread. Uh, sexual sins became, became commonplace. There's a lawless nature. There's uh, even animals are interbreeding. There has been a moral decline. And the Almighty sees what's happening, and he decides he's going to destroy the world and start from scratch. And he tells Noah, Noah, of course, is a prophet, that that's it. This is the end. The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with robbery through them. Behold, I'm about to destroy them, and you are going to survive. Make yourself a huge boat, an ark out of this kind of wood, and in the ark, fill it with compartments and plaster it with pitch, with tar. And we're told the, the, the measurements, the dimensions of the ark, it's 300 cubits length, 50 cubits width, and 30 cubits height. And on top of the ark, you put a window and you make an entrance and three levels, and that's it. The Almighty is going to bring water to destroy the world, but you're going to go into the boat and you're going to survive. Now, it's interesting, Rashi tells us that the real objective of over here was to create this stirring of repentance when people see Noah building this monstrous boat, maybe not even near any water, and they'll come to him and say, well, why are you building this boat? And in fact, our sages tell us that he worked 120 years to build this enormous ship and the people are going to come to him, all the passerby, and they're going to say, well, Noah, why are you building this massive boat? And he'll respond to them, well, because the Almighty is going to bring a terrible deluge of rain to destroy the world because you're all sinners. And the hope was that thanks to this inspiration, the people will decide to repent and the flood will be postponed or even canceled. So in, in essence, the ark was a tool to encourage repentance. But of course, as we know, even though he spent 120 years building it, it didn't actually yield that result, the intended result. The people were not convinced, they didn't return, and the flood happened. Now, it's interesting, the Torah tells us the exact dimensions of the arts. 30 amos long, 30 cubits length. A cubit is around two feet or so. So, if you think about it in, that, in those terms, in, the, in those dimensions, 300 amos long, so it's 600 feet long, 100 feet wide, and 60 feet tall. And it's interesting that 
we now know today that if you want to build a boat for maximum buoyancy, the width of the boat should be a sixth of its length and the height should be a tenth of its length. That's been proven today. And here we see that at the time of Noah, thousands of years ago, they might tell them, okay, I want you to build it precisely with these measurements. And we know today that's the best way to build a boat. The, the dimensions, the relationship of the length and the width of the height are supposed to be in accordance with what Noah did in order for it to float the best. Now, on top of the boat, he's told to put a tsoar or a window. And it's interesting, Rashi tells us that this word tsoar, which we translate as a window, some opinions actually hold that this refers to a window, but alternatively, it could be referring to some sort of precious stone through which the prism of the light on the outside will illuminate the inside. Maybe a pearl, maybe some other sort of crystal or different stone that will enable there to be illumination inside. It's an interesting dispute that Rashi offers here. Some sages say that Sohar means window, and some sages say that Sohar refers to some stone. And uh, one of the commentaries notes that Rashi, at the beginning of the Parsha, offers, again, two opinions of the sages. Was Noah super righteous even in his generation? And he would have been even greater in the generation of Abraham? Or was Noah righteous only in his generation, but in Abraham's generation, he wouldn't have amounted to much? So the commentaries note that these two comments of Rashi, A, with respect to Noah's righteousness vis-a-vis other generations, and B, with respect to what kind of window or source of illumination was put onto the ark, they're actually connected. Because if Noah was only relatively righteous, he was only righteous in his generation, then the rule is that if someone is righteous but not fully righteous, they're not allowed to witness the suffering of the sinners. And therefore, according to the second opinion in Rashi, that Noah was only righteous in his generation, well then he would not be allowed to look outside to see the suffering of all the sinners. And therefore, when it, when it says Tzohar, it must be referring to a stone, but not to a window. Whereas, according to the other opinion in Rashi, where Noah was righteous, even in his generation, he would have been so much greater if he was in Abraham's generation. Well, then the word Tzohar can mean a window, and Noah was allowed to look outside to see the suffering and the downfall of the people of his generation uh, who were sinners. It's interesting, we see this theme again uh, in several chapters. We'll read about Lot, who is uh, Abraham's brother-in-law and nephew. He's going to be a resident of the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, and he's going to be saved, but he's told quite sternly he's not allowed to look and witness in the downfall of the sinners, because he himself was only relatively righteous, and he was really saved primarily due to Abraham, That's why he was not allowed to witness the suffering and the downfall of his wicked uh, members of his city. Now, one of the themes that, you know, I spent many years in yeshiva, and one of the themes that's revisited many, many times in uh, the course of someone's tenure in yeshiva is that the yeshiva really is modeled after the ark, and this is more like a spiritual art. This is just a theme that I've encountered many times in my uh, years studying. I think it's, it's germane. 
that we're told in the yeshiva that really, you know, for someone's soul to be out in the world, it's almost like there's this deluge, there's this terrible danger to the vitality of the soul, and certainly it's compounded by the soul of of an adolescent, uh, of, a, of, a, of a teenager, for them to not to be around in the world, it could be quite harmful for them in the world. And therefore, the concept of a yeshiva is almost like modeled after the teva, after the ark, that it's, it's, it's safety. It's a place of refuge where we take young yeshiva students and we place them in, in a cozy, comfort, comfortable environment where they, their soul can be safe and their soul can flourish. So Noah's told, build the ark and there's going to be a massive uh, flood in the world, but you're going to survive, you and your wife and your three sons and your three sons' wives. And not only that, you're going to take with you all the animals and all kinds of food, and you're going to spend a significant amount of time in the ark. And once the devastation is over, you're going to repopulate the world, start from scratch. Now, it's interesting, if you read chapter 6, verse 18, quite critically, you'll notice something very unusual. It says, I will establish, this is God talking to Noah, I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your son's wives. So if you'll notice, it separates Noah and Noah's wife and Noah's sons and Noah's son's wives. I'll read it again. You shall enter the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your son's wives. If you and I were writing this, we would probably write it, you, your wife, your sons, your son's wives. Instead, it says, you, your sons, your wife, and your son's wives. So Rashi, of course, jumps on this, and he tells us something very interesting. He says that the men and the women were separated for the entire duration, a year that they spent on the ark. They were separated, the men and the women, and they were not allowed to engage in marital intercourse for the whole duration of the time that they spent in the ark. And the idea being that it's improper for people to be joyous while others are suffering. And even though the people who are suffering are the sinners, they're the ones who are doing idolatry and all kinds of terrible sins, and they had it coming, but still, when they're suffering, it's improper for you to be joyous and be revelrous. And the Talmud, in fact, tells us that when the Jewish people in the book of Exodus, during the splitting of the sea, and the Jewish people are walking in dry land, amidst the sea, and the Egyptians were being swamped by the waters, the angels on high wanted to sing the praises of the Almighty. And the Almighty tells them, no, 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 it's improper for you to sing praises when my handiwork is suffering and drowning in the water. Even though these are the Egyptians who did all kinds of terrible, heinous crimes against the Jewish people, but still, when they're suffering, it's improper for even the Almighty and the angels and the Jewish people and Noah and his family to not partake, so to speak, to deviate from the public, we have to suffer alongside with them. Now, Noah's told initially to take two, a male and a female, two animals of each species, of, of land animals, of birds, of all kinds of insects, 
two of each male and female into the ark. So the commentators spent a lot of time trying to figure out, okay, well, how big is this ark? And how did they fit everyone in? So we're told in the verse, the dimensions of the ark, and that there's compartments in the ark. We're not told exactly how many compartments, the size of the compartments, but we can figure out at least a rough estimate from the dimensions that were given how big this boat is and how much room does it have and could it really fit all the animals in it. So it's interesting of the commentators, the medieval medieval commentators that talk about this, you see kind of two different approaches. According to Rabbeinu Bachya and the Ramban, they say, well, it was a miracle that really the ark was, was quite large, but it wasn't large enough to fit all the animals you have uh, you have all kinds of elephants and giraffes, huge animals, two of each, lions and all kinds of different cats and very big animals. And to fit them all, even in a very large boat, seems to be only possible if it was a miracle. And then they say, well, if it was a miracle, why do you need to build such a big boat? Put a little rowboat, and if it's a miracle, well, everyone can fit in. The miracle can happen regardless of the size of the boat. And then the answer is an interesting idea, is that miracles are always minimized. That even though it was a miracle that they all fit in, but in order to minimize the miracle, the Almighty tells them, okay, build a huge boat. It is huge by any standard, not big enough, but it's still huge, and therefore the miracle doesn't appear to be as large and as significant. That's what the Ramban Rabbeinu B'chai says. The Ibn Ezra, one of the other commentators, he says, no, he says, well, an ama, just like we have in our parlance, we have something called a foot, which is a, a unit of measurement. But a foot is actually modeled after the human foot. And it's roughly the same size. And an ama, an ama extends from a, uh, the elbow to the end of the finger. It's like the forearm and the hand of, of a man is called an ama. So he wants to suggest that Noah was a lot larger than maybe humans are today, and therefore the ama that it's talking about in that antediluvian period is actually much larger. It's not two feet, maybe it's 12 feet, maybe it's seven feet, but it's bigger. And therefore the whole boat is bigger. The Ramban doesn't like it because he says, well, if the people were bigger, then maybe the animals were bigger as well. Well, maybe the Noah was bigger, but the animals were smaller. But it is kind of an interesting discussion to dwell upon. Now, just for the sake of getting a sense of how large the ark was, how big was this boat, if you do the math, it turns out that uh, it's around 600 feet long, 100 feet wide, 60 feet tall. It's roughly 3.3 million cubic feet, which if you break that down into compartments, you will end up with a thousand compartments of 10 feet by 10 feet by 10 feet and roughly 30,000 compartments of 5 feet by 4 feet by 4 feet. If you were to make this into a zoo and you put each compartment next to each other, you end up with a zoo that's 27 miles long, the length of a marathon. So by any standard, this is not a small zoo, this is not a small art, this is not a small boat, there's still a lot of room to put a lot of different animals, granted you need room for food and waste disposal, etc., but the point is is that this is still a massive, massive boat. Now, the mind tells him, okay, I want to collect all the animals, however, he makes uh, an exception. 
In verse 20, he tells him, from each bird according to its kind, from each animal according to its kind, from each thing that creeps on the ground according to its kind, according to its kind. What the Almighty is telling him, Rashi points this out, that this exception or this salvation in the ark is limited to the animals that maintained integrity and fidelity to their kind. Like we mentioned earlier, there were animals that had interbred with other species. Those animals were affected by the corruption borne about by the humans in the world. They became corrupted as well, and therefore they were going to go extinct. So we don't know how many animals existed before the flood, but what we do know is that the flood was not only a terrible, traumatic event to world ecology and world population, but it was also a massive extinction event to who knows uh, how many species that had not fulfilled the requirement needed to be allowed entry that they had interbred with other species. Fine, so Noah does exactly what the Almighty tells him. That's how chapter 6 ends. Noah did according to everything God had commanded him to do, so he did. He built the ark exactly the way the Almighty wanted him. Like we said, this took 120 years. So in essence, you have 120 years from chapter 6, where Noah is instructed to do this, to chapter 7, when it is completed. So chapter 7 believes uh, begins... Then Hashem said to Noah, Come to the ark, you and all your household, for it is you that I have seen to be righteous before me in this generation. And then the Almighty reminds him, Okay, it's not just you and your family, it's also animals. Of every clean animal, you take seven pairs, a male and a female. And of the animals that are not clean, i.e. the animals that are not kosher, you take only two, a male with its mate. So it's interesting, in chapter 6, the Almighty tells him, you're taking two of each species. In chapter 7, it says, no, 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 of the non-kosher species, well, then you take two male and a female husband and wife. Of the kosher species, or the species that will eventually, in the Torah, be labeled as kosher, you take seven pairs, male and female, total of 14 animals. So the question can be asked, well, I don't understand. Why is the Almighty contradicting himself? In chapter 6, when he instructs Noah to go into the ark, it's two of each and doesn't differentiate between kosher, clean animals, not kosher, unclean animals. And then when the final day has come to go into the ark, the Almighty says, okay, four kosher animals, you take seven pairs, a total of 14. And for non-kosher animals, you take only two, husband and wife. So maybe the answer is that uh, what actually happened is something very significant. Now, why do you need, what, what's the difference between kosher and non-kosher animals? We'll see later on, after the, uh, the flood is over, Noah has exited the ark, he brings sacrifices to God with the kosher animals. And what changed between chapter 6 and chapter 7 is the fact that Noah, he had a massive transformation, personal transformation. Uh, originally, God said, okay, it's, it's, it's about survival. We need the world to continue. You're righteous. We need the species, at least the species that have not interbred to continue. We have to gather two of each. But Noah did everything fastidiously, meticulously filled all the Almighty's requests. So he, in essence, is adopting the will of God completely. And that's the last verse of chapter 6. And now the Almighty tells him, oh, it's not just going to be about survival, 
I want to have a deep relationship with you. And therefore, I want you to bring extra animals so you can bring sacrifices, which are this bond between man and God. I want to have that relationship with you because you're, you're, you're very special, even more special than I thought initially or than you were initially, and therefore bring seven pairs. Uh, that said, this policy almost that we see amongst the commentators and in the Talmudic and Midrashic sources of poking holes in Noah's character continues even in the episode of him entering the ark. So he's told, gather this in seven days, gather the animals in seven days. There's going to be rain for 40 days and 40 nights, and everything that exists is going to be destroyed. And Noah again does whatever God wants. He's 600 years old at the time. And this is the critical verse. This is chapter 7, verse 7. Noah, with his sons, his wife, and his son's wives, so again, the, the men and the women are being separated, went into the ark because of the waters of the flood. So Rashi right away jumps on these words. Noah entered because of the waters of the flood, which seems to imply that the reason why Noah entered was not because of the instruction that God told him in the beginning of chapter 7, go into the ark, you and your household, we're gonna, you're going to survive this. It was actually because of the waters, almost as if Noah waited to see is this real? Will it really start raining? What does the forecast look like? And only because the waters, the actual effect of the flood, that nudged him into the ark. And the Talmud says, quoted by Rashi, even Noah, he didn't have full faith. He believed, but he didn't fully believe that the flood will come, and he only entered because he was compelled to do so by the water. So even though he had spent essentially a whole lifetime, 120 years building the ark, there was still some smidgen, some scintilla of doubt. Maybe it's, maybe it's not really going to happen. And therefore, the Torah points it out and almost gives this critique, this criticism of Noah, that his, his faith in God was not complete. But he comes into the ark with two of each non-kosher animal and seven of each kosher animal. It's the second month of, of, of the 600th year of Noah's life, 17th day of the month, and it starts raining like crazy for 40 days and 40 nights. And initially, this is Rashi points out, the Torah uses different words for what actually transpired, that kind of rain. Use different terms for the rain. Initially it calls it rain, and then it calls it like a flood or a deluge. So which one is it? So Rashi says initially it was, at the beginning, it was rain. It was light rain. And the Almighty says, well, if the people repent with the light rain, I'm just, I'm going to cancel the whole flood and it'll be just a regular sun shower. It'll be a regular, a rainy day, but nothing bad will happen. But unfortunately, the, the, the people of Noah's generation did not repent, and therefore it turned eventually into a deluge. So this is an, like an astonishing statement. Even after 120 years of building the ark, Noah's invested his, a whole lifetime into doing this. It was still possible to pull the plug on the whole plan up to the very last minute. This is a theme that we say a lot on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, that God is almost like waiting for us 
Ad yomoso techatalo, we say, until the day of someone's death, the Almighty is waiting, anticipating, im yashuv, if he returns, if he repents, miyad techablo, right away the Almighty will take him in. The Almighty does not desire in the death of the wicked, only that they return to God. Unfortunately, it didn't work out. The people did not repent, and the flood and the deluge began. Chapter 7, verse 13, on that very day, Noah came with shame, with Ham, with Yafes, Noah's sons, with Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons, into the ark with all the animals, and the Almighty shut the door, so to speak, and the chaos began outside. It's interesting, Rashi points this out, that in three instances of the Torah, we're told that something happened on that very day, or in the middle of the day, in front of everyone. What are those three events? Number one, the flood. Number two, the exodus. The exodus also happened in the middle of the day. And number three, the death of Moshe. And in all three instances, Rashi explains that these were such transformative events that people said, it's not possible for it to happen. It's not possible the Almighty will save this one family and kill everyone else. It's not possible the Almighty will take a nation, snatch them amidst another nation, and bring them out of Egypt. It's not possible that Moshe, the great leader, the great prophet who gave us the Torah, who engineered and orchestrated and led the Exodus, he'll die, not possible? And the Almighty says, no, it is possible, and I'm going to do it all these three things in the middle of the day. So the flood is on the earth for 40 days. The waters just keep on piling on, and the ark is lifted above the earth, and the waters strengthen, and the waters just get higher and higher until all the mountains are covered. Everything's covered. And in fact, we're told in verse 20 that the water ascends 15 cubits uh, higher than the mountains. Everyone that's alive is died. All the birds, all the animals, all the beasts, all the creeping things, of course, all people, they all died. All in whose nostrils were the breath of the spirit of life, of everything that was on the dry land, died. Commentators point out, the fish did not die. Interesting. And it says, and he blotted out, this is the Almighty, blotted out all existence that was on the face of the earth, from man to animals to creeping things and to the birds of the heaven, they were all blotted out from the earth. Only Noah survived and those with him in the ark. So these words, only Noah survived. Noah didn't thrive. He also survived. Says Rashi, it's been very interesting here in Rashi. Rashi says that Noah survived coughing and spitting blood. It wasn't a very pleasant year that he spent on the ark. Why? Because the whole day, He's feeding all the animals. And some animals eat at four in the morning. And some some animals eat multiple times a day. And he's running around like a madman, feeding everyone, taking care, tending to all these animals. That's one opinion in Rashi. second opinion in Rashi is, is that during one of these days, Noah was late in giving food to the lion. And the lion swiped him. The lion hit him. And therefore, Noah was coughing and spitting blood. This is an interesting little Rashi that's almost telling us not just about what happened outside of the ark during this eventful 
year, but what happened inside. It wasn't so pleasant. It was very difficult for Noah and his family. So one of the commentaries says something very interesting. The reason why the whole flood happened, that we saw at the beginning of the Parsha, it was because the, the people of the time of the generation were wicked, were evil. They did idolatry. They did all kinds of sexual misdeeds. But what actually sealed the deal was that they did robbery. There were there was lawlessness. People didn't respect other people. There was a lack of kindness, of concern for other people and what they needed. There was a lack of kindness. And therefore, what had to be fixed, so to speak, in this fundamental flaw of humanity was that they weren't kind. And therefore, in order to ensure that whatever emerges from the ark, humanity will be infused with love and kindness. They'll train themselves to become habitually kind people. The Almighty says, okay, for this year that Noah's in the ark, he's going to be doing nothing but kindness, feeding the animals, tending to them, running around like a madman, having no personal life, no personal respite, just doing kindness to the animals. And hopefully this will instill a new kind of human that will emerge the people will not have the same characteristics that led to this first debacle. Once once Noah and his family leaves and begin to repopulate the earth, it'll be a different, a different atmosphere. So chapter eight begins. It's been 150 days now, and the Almighty remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the animals that were with him in the ark. And the Almighty slowed down the the water, the water subsided, the rain stopped, the windows of the heavens closed, and the water begins to recede. It takes a while for it to recede. Eventually, the ark settles on top of one of the mountains, Mount Ararat. And if you Google this Ararat, uh, everyone seems to, every, every year or so, they claim to have found it. They found the ark on some mountain that they they think maybe is Mount Ararat. And uh, who knows? Now, chapter 8 begins with this idea that God remembered Noah. Now, every time it says that God remembered, this appears throughout the Torah, where it says God remembered, it doesn't mean that God could potentially forget. Of course, that's not possible. God can forget. But rather, it means that God is invoking the merits of the subject, of the human subject or the animal subject uh, that he's remembering. So God remembers Noah. Well, what's he remembering? That Noah did righteousness, did kindness to the animals. What about the animals? What did the Almighty remember for the animals? It says Rashi, he remembered, or he's invoking this merit, that they did not corrupt their path, that they did not interbreed, and they also maintained the separation of husband and wife for the duration of the flood in the ark. Okay, so the water is beginning to subside, the mountaintops become visible, and Noah is still now in the ark, and he doesn't know, is it safe to come out, where, where exactly is the water? He doesn't really have sensors to figure out where, uh, where the water is and if it's possible to open the door. So he sends out first the raven, and the idea is you send the, send the raven out, send a bird out, see if he can land, see if he can find any place to, to settle. The raven refuses to leave. So he takes a different bird, the dove, and the dove goes around but doesn't find a place uh, to settle down. 
So he sends it out a second time, uh, and the second time it comes back and it has an olive leaf in its mouth. So no one knows that the water subsided enough from the earth that olive, this olive tree, I guess that had survived, uh, was accessible to the dove. He waits some more time, he sends the dove out a third time, and it does not come back. So there's an interesting little uh, anecdote in the story when Noah's sending out all these birds. So it's interesting. We're told the type of tree that the dove in the middle time, the second time where he's sent out, the dove snatches an olive tree branch. That's what we're told. So very kind of seemingly trivial fact, the nature of the tree that the dove snatched to show that the waters had subsided. So Rashi tells us something, I think, fantastic. Rashi says is that we know that the olive tree branch, or the leaves in general, are bitter. And the dove is as if the dove is saying, when it comes with an olive branch, it says, I want to eat this. Even though it's bitter, and not, but it comes straight from God, and not have things, foods that are as sweet as honey, come from man. Even though for the whole year, Noah was feeding the bird, like he was feeding all the animals, high quality food, says the dove, so to speak, I prefer getting my food directly from God, directly from God's handiwork, which we call nature. Even though it's bitter, even though it's not the highest quality food, that's better than whatever you're serving. Just an interesting idea here. So finally, it's, it's been a year now, and the earth is dry, and the Almighty tells Noah, it's time to come out, you and your wife, your sons, and your sons' wives. So again, Rashi jumps on this, and you'll notice, when they went in, it was Noah and Noah's sons, and Noah's wife, and Noah's wife's sons. And here it's different. Go forth from the ark, you and your wife, your sons, and your sons' wives with you. So Rashi again points out, that now they might be saying, okay, now marital intercourse is okay, and the husbands and wives are together again. And he tells them, be fruitful, multiply, we're going to repopulate the earth. And Noah begins to thank God by building an altar and taking the kosher animals and kosher birds and offering sacrifices to God. And the Almighty says, oh, I'm making a pledge. I will not continue to curse again the ground because of man, since the imagery of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again continue to smite every living being as I have done. Continue see all the days of the earth, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So Noah leaves the ark. He brings a sacrifice of several sacrifices to God. And God makes a promise not to destroy the world again and not to disrupt the natural order of the seasons. There's always going to be seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night. Those will not cease from thenceforth. And that's the end of chapter 8. Chapter 9 begins where God blesses Noah, again tells him, be fruitful and multiply. And you don't have to worry about the animals the fear and the dread of you shall will be on the animals. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. He tells them that now you're allowed to eat meat. Remember we said last week, 
Adam was not allowed to eat meat. Meat, eat meat. Adam had to be a vegetarian. But now, after the after the flood and after the whole episode of the Ark, we're told Rashi points this out that now they're allowed to eat meat. Now, what changed? So my grandfather says something very interesting. He says that because Noah toiled in taking care of the animals for a whole year, he earned the right to consume them, to eat them as food. So from now on, uh, meat is is allowed to be consumed. However, but flesh with its soul, its blood, you shall not eat. You cannot, Noah is not allowed to eat. And this, this prohibition extends to us as well today. We're not allowed to eat the limb of an animal that's still alive. If you want to eat meat, great. You got to make sure the animal's dead before you eat it. You can't just chop off a leg off a cow. And while the cow was going crazy, you start munching on its leg. And then we're also told a prohibition against suicide and murder. However, your blood which belongs to your souls, I will demand of every beast, will I demand it, but of men, of every man that is for his brother, I will demand the soul of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God he made man. Interestingly, in Jewish law, suicide is akin to murder. And the reason, the underlying reason behind that is that we don't believe that we are owners of our soul. God owns our soul. We're the guardians. We're the stewards. We have responsibility for our soul, but ultimately it's not ours. And if it's not mine, I cannot dispose of it or dispense of it as I wish, if God says, you cannot take someone else's soul, you cannot take your soul, both of them are prohibited, suicide is really no different than murder. And in fact, we're told that the Almighty will punish the, both the murderer who kills someone else and the murderer who kills himself equally. Now, it's interesting, in chapter, uh, again, chapter 9, uh, verse 8, God tells Noah again, be fruitful and multiply, team the earth and multiply in it. So Rashi points out that Noah was still a little bit uneasy. The Maya says, okay, we're out of the ark, we're good, I made a promise, I made a pledge not to destroy the world again, but they're still a little bit uncomfortable trying to procreate given what they have just experienced, this total destruction of all of humanity besides for them. So the Maya says, another instruction, be fruitful and multiply, and he gives them another pledge another promise, another sign promising that he won't destroy the world. And he gives them the rainbow, the covenant of the rainbow. He says, okay, when it rains, you'll see a rainbow and that'll remind you my pledge not to destroy the world again like I did with the rain of the flood. And it's almost as if the Almighty is 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 bolstering his pledge by making it not just a, a promise, a prophecy, he won't destroy the world, but kind of adding to it a an action, the 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 um, the rainbow, which adds another layer of irre- irrevocability. He, the Almighty is pledging this this such an event will never happen again. Okay, so we so Noah's out, and they they're I guess they're planning on repopulating. Certainly Noah is; his children are. And again, we told about his children because they're going to play a part in the next episode. Uh, Shame and Ham and Yafes, or Shame and Ham and Japheth. And uh, we're told quite curiously in verse 18, uh, one of Ham's sons, his name is Canaan. And we'll see why that's relevant in a little bit. 
So verse 20, we're told Noah, the man of the earth, the earthly man, debased himself and planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and he uncovered himself within his tent. It's almost as if Noah was depressed. He was despondent. He had melancholy and he got drunk and then he took off all his clothing in his tent. That's how we read it quite simply. And Rashi points out that what was, what was Noah's great mistake? Not, to, not, not that he planted the vineyard or that he had a drink or two, but rather the order of his planting. He should have first planted maybe wheat, things that are more essential to continuity of life, wheat or barley or something like that, corn. Uh, his miscalculation was that he, he went straight to the alcohol, planted the vineyard, and that was his mistake, and that led to this event that we're going to read about in just a little bit. That's what Rashi says. One of the other commentaries, the Balaturim, says that Noah planted a vineyard. Well, where, where have we seen a vineyard beforehand? So the commentary points out that in the Talmud, it posits that the tree of knowledge of good and evil in last week's partial word that Adam ate from in the Garden of Eden was actually a grapevine. And Noah took that grapevine and replanted it, almost as if Noah was saying, okay, we've gone through this traumatic event as a species, but now we're going to create, we're going to replicate the conditions of the Garden of of Eden. It's almost as if like we're going to restore the level of Adam prior to the original sin, and now we're going to recreate the garden. So he takes the vines and then he brings with him from the ark and begins to plant and eventually becomes drunk. And when he's drunk, unfortunately, he is undressed. And when he's undressed, something very terrible happens in verse 22. Ham, Ham, the father of Canaan, again, we're told that Ham is the father of Canaan, saw his father's nakedness and told his two brothers outside. So if you read this simply, without looking at Rashi, it seems like he just looked at his father's nakedness. But Rashi says something very startling. Rashi says, there's two opinions what this means. Either he castrated his father or he sodomized his father. And maybe the rationale for Rashi to interpret that is that when Noah wakes up, he realizes what happens to him. And Rashi explains a little bit later that the reason why Ham, Ham, why he castrated his father was because he said, hey, my father has three sons, so the whole world is going to be divided up between us three. And what happened to Adam's sons? Well, he had only two sons. And one of them killed the other because he didn't want to split the, the world. He didn't want to split his inheritance. So he just took, he took drastic measures and killed his brother. Well, my father has three sons. So I only have one third of the world for myself. And now my father is even thinking about having more children. And that's going to dilute my share of the inheritance. So his only solution to such a problem was to castrate his father. Now, in the interim, when uh, the two other brothers, they hear about what, uh, what's transpiring in the tent, uh, they take a garment and they put it on their shoulders and they walk backwards and they cover their father's nakedness. 
and their faces were turned away that they didn't see it. And afterwards, when Noah wakes up, he realizes what happened and he dispenses the proper punishment and reward. He says first, cursed is Canaan, a slave of slaves shall he be to his brother. Ham, his son, Noah's son, committed a grievous act against him. And what does he do? Noah punishes Ham's son, Ham's fourth son. So the Talmud tells us is that what Ham did was he, by castrating his father, he ensured that his father's fourth son would not exist, would not come into fruition. And therefore, tit for tat, measure for measure, his fourth son, namely Canaan, is going to be punished. He'll be a slave of slaves to his brother. And Shame and Yafes, the other two sons who did the magnanimous act of covering their father in his time of vulnerability, they are rewarded with great blessings. Uh, Blessed is Hashem, the God of shame. May God extend Japheth, but he will dwell in the tents of shame. And Canaan is going to be a slave to both of them. And then finally, the story of Noah ends in verse 28. Uh, that Noah lived for another 100, 350 years after the flood, and his total lifespan was 950 years, and he died. It's interesting, there's an episode in the Talmud uh, just about this idea of, of, of uh, the sensitivity that we're, we're, we're shown in this episode about covering the father's nakedness. Uh, so the Talmud talks about Antoninus, who was most likely Marcus Aurelius Antoninus, who was the Roman Caesar in the end of the 2nd century of the Common Era. And according to Jewish sources, he was quite friendly with the leader of the Jews at the time, who was known as Rabbi Judah the Prince. And according to the, the, some opinions, he actually converted to Judaism. So the Talmud records a very interesting episode. It says that this Antoninus, this Caesar of Rome, converted to Judaism and circumcised himself, which as we know, is part of the process of converting to Judaism. And he comes to his friend, Rabbi Judah the Prince, and he says, I want you to inspect the job. See if I did a good job. Was my circumcision valid? So Rabbi Judah the Prince tells him, at my circumcision, I have not looked at once in my life, and I'm going to look at yours and says the Talmud, this is why Rabbi Judah the Prince, his name is, or one of his nicknames in the Talmud, is Rabbeinu HaKadosh, our holy teacher. He was holy because he had the same sensitivity to uh, matters of privacy, this incredible sensitivity to, uh, to matters of privacy that we see here is lauded in the episode of Shame and Yafes covering their father. Now, the rest of the Parsha, which is chapter 10 uh, and chapter 11, are going to be, there's going to be a lot of lineage. Uh, We're going to, just like at the end of the first Parsha, Parsha's Parishes, we went from Adam to Noah and the 10 generations spanning Adam to Noah. Here, we're going to go with it, we're going to delineate quite quickly the 10 generations from Noah to Abraham, who's going to be, of course, the central character of the next several portions of of the Torah. But amidst this lineage of all these nations that are going to descend from a shame from Ham and Yafes, we're going to meet about a very important character whose name is Nimrod. 
So chapter 10, verse 8, And Cush begot Nimrod. He was the first to be a mighty man on earth. He was the first one to make a real empire. He was a mighty hunter before Hashem. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before Hashem. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From, the, from that land, Ashur went forth and built Ninveh, Rehovot Ir, all these cities that he built into this great city. And no, and Nimrod is going to be an important character uh, for the episode of the dispersion that we'll read about in just a bit. And he's also going to play a role in the life of the great hero that we're going to be at the end of the parsha, Abraham, who's initially called Abraham. Rashi tells us something very interesting about Nimrod, that he was someone who was going to lead this rebellion against God, not because he didn't believe in God, because he Instead, he knew about God, but rebelled against him intentionally. Now, what was this rebellion? So after we read about more of this, these families and the various different tribes that they spawned, in chapter 11, we read about the Tower of Babel. Again, this is the first great civilization in, in Babel under the leadership of Nimrod, and they're going to try to rebel against God. We read in verse 1, the whole earth was of one language and a common purpose, and it came to pass, they went to the valley, and they said to each other, let's make bricks and burn them in a fire, and then use the bricks as a stone, and then use various things like cement or mortar, and we'll build us up a city, and then a tower on top of the city, and have the tower go up all the way to heaven, and we'll make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed across the whole earth. That's what it says. That's their plan. They're going to build this massive structure, this massive skyscraper, and they're going to go up to heaven. Rashi tells us it wasn't clear what they had intended to do. Uh, Let's go up to heaven and make war with God. Uh, Let's go to heaven to maybe give support to the heavenly firmament so it doesn't collapse upon us like it did in the times of the flood. Of course, the times of the flood were in very recent memory. They were worried that maybe... In the sky, there was it, it wasn't secure enough. We had to build some sort of uh, column to hold it up in heaven. And the Talmud tells us that there were actually three different groups uh, or different different attitudes towards this toward this tower. Some of them said, "Let's go up and dwell in heaven," and then some of them said, "Let's go up and do idolatry." And then a third group said, let's go up and do warfare. And it says that some of these people were destroyed. Some of them were turned into monkeys and various other demons and such. Some of them were scattered throughout the land. But regardless, the theme that is emerging is that even though we had a corrupt community, corrupt world before Noah, before the flood there's still some very severe, unfinished business. The deluge, the flood of Noah, didn't fix all the fundamental problems that existed amongst humanity. And that's why we're going to read about Abraham, who is going to greatly transform the world and alter its trajectory in a great way. But what is interesting is that previously we see before the flood, there is not a lot of cooperation between the people. There's a lot of discord, there's a lot of theft And here, what do we read? We read about a city. 
where people are uniting for one purpose and they're coming up with the resources to build a massive structure. So it's, so it's almost like the story is telling us that, yes, one of the problems has been solved. The problem of people not working together, of, of not being sufficient uh, interdependence, that problem has been solved. But the fact that they're rejecting God or some of them are rejecting God, that's still present. And that, of course, is going to change once we meet Abraham. And that we happen to meet him at the end of this week's Parsha. Quite briefly, uh, we're given a quick delineation of all these families and all these progenitors of Abraham, spanning from Noah to Abraham. And finally, we read about Nahor, and then his son is Terach. And Terach has three sons, Abraham, Nahor, and Haran, and the wives that they marry. And uh, then one of Abraham's brothers dies, and then Terach, they start on a trip to Can- the land of Canaan, and then he, they stop halfway. They stop in a place called Haran, and they don't make it to Canaan. But the beginning of Netri's Parsha, we're going to read about Abraham and his journey on his own, without his family, with just his wife and his followers, where they head out to the land of Israel, known then as the land of Canaan.